you, Sarah. Good evening, everybody. Um, shall we turn in our Bibles to page 1203? And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, just so you know. Um, but just to encourage you in, from the start that we're, we're going to be looking at an exhortation. We're going to look at a warning. And we're going to look at an encouragement as well. So see if you can spot those um, as we read through. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting from verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we who have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There we go. So the first 11 verses of this chapter addresses the subject of God's Sabbath rest. But what exactly is God's Sabbath rest? Clearly, it is really important, as the writer of this letter has been talking about it for two chapters now. Um, And if you remember last week, it came up in chapter three as well. Christine was preaching on it. And in this chapter, we're encouraged twice not to miss out on it and to make every effort to enter into it. So let's look at it in a bit more detail. So this Sabbath rest the author is saying, has existed since the creation of the world. Have a look down just at verse 3. When God rested from his work on the seventh day of creation, 
It was because everything was completed and perfected. It was job done. There was nothing to be done at that point but to enjoy this creation and enjoy being in God's presence. And the author is saying that this rest is ongoing. It still exists. So when Adam and Eve were disobedient to God and hid themselves from him out of their shame and guilt, it wasn't the case that heaven was removed from earth. It was Adam and Eve who left Eden. Heaven hasn't gone anywhere. It's still available. Well, let me put it another way. The wonderful presence of God is so much closer than we think. And we see as well in verse 2 that this good news uh, had already been preached to some people. It was promised to the Israelites. And in Exodus, it says, The God who brought you up out of Egypt and delivered you from slavery is going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and will give you his rest. That's the promise that they received. But the tragedy is that they heard those words and they had every opportunity to enter into that rest. But because they didn't act on God's promises, because they doubted again and again that his word was true, They let their fears get the better of them. And yes, the next generation might have then entered into the physical promised land, but they never entered into God's rest. So that's why, if you look at verse 8 and verse 9, although in the time of David they were comfortably established in the promised land, there still remained a need for them to enter into God's heavenly presence. The presence of God was closer than they thought. And yet they never entered in. So the writer of this letter is practically pleading with us. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that none will fall by following their example of disobedience. And I think we might, at this point, be tempted to ask, why is this writer telling the Christian recipients of this letter this? And what's it got to do with me? I don't presume to know where you are at in your Christian journey, um, but if you are a Christian, it's possible that you're looking at this and wondering what it has to do with you, because you already believe that Jesus has opened the way to the Father. Well, that's absolutely great if that's the position you're in. So you've seen that the door is open ahead of you, And you believe that you can enter into God's presence. And you've put that one foot over the threshold. And that's fantastic. But the question that I want to ask us today is, where is your other foot? Which way are you leaning? Because we might believe in God's promise and put that one foot in. But if we don't follow it up with action, move this foot in as well. We haven't actually entered into God's rest. We've not actually put that forward, that, put that foot forward into it as well. So if you like, the picture here is this is what it looks like to enter God's rest. I believe in his promises, so I act on his promises. So I believe in his promises, so I act on his promises. So I believe on his promises and I act on his promises. It's that journey of leaning into him always further in and always closer to the heart of the Father. 
But I wonder if for any of us, like for the Israelites, we're looking ahead into that promised land and we're hearing rumors of giants. That's what happened to them in Exodus. Have a look. What if God makes me do something I don't want to do? What if that's what we're wondering? What if God makes me give up something I don't want to give up? What if God sends me somewhere I don't want to go? And our fear leaves us stuck in that place we've put that belief in, but we're leaning on the back foot because our actions are not quite able to follow and we've not entered that rest. And I think that the reality is that this can happen to any one of us at any time. We might be really early on in our walk. We might have only just heard about Jesus and just be at the point of trying to work out, make up our mind about whether we trust him to go all the way or not. Or it might be that we're much further on in our walk and we've heard a call from God to take things to the next level, to maybe step out uh, with an element of risk. But we've got comfortable here and we're not sure that we like the look of where we're being asked to go next. But the picture that's actually being painted to us across the whole of Hebrews is that if we stop leaning in, we start to drift back. So how do we lean into God's rest? Well, we have two tools at our disposal, and both of them are made powerful in us by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So we lean on the Word of God, and we lean on Jesus' grace. So let's look at both of those. We lean on the word of God, which we see in verse 12 here, if you want to take a look, is living and active. It penetrates and divides, and it judges the heart. Three characteristics there. Well, the word of man is often made meaningless, isn't it, by the fact that however much we might try to do what we say we're going to do, our actions don't always match up to our words. The word of God, on the other hand, is so sure that when he says something, it comes into being at its very utterance. Just have a look back at Genesis. Let there be light, and there was. It's almost like you can imagine him saying it as it happened. The word of God, we understand, is living and active. The words we read in the Bible are not simply nice phrases to try and make us feel better but they have the power to put their meaning into immediate effect in their own right. And as a result, this powerful word of God is like the sharpest of swords. It doesn't simply, simply sit waiting for us to make a decision about whether we like what it says or not. Instead, it penetrates and divides. It is the very thing that sifts through our thoughts and our motives splitting right from wrong and good from evil. And it judges the heart. Now, this is both a wonderful piece of good news and a terrifying thought. It all depends on which way you are leaning. If we're leaning on that back foot, unwilling to act on God's word, we ultimately find that same word coming in powerful opposition to us. We may have a really nice, neat way of explaining to ourselves why our decision to ignore a certain portion of the word is rational and acceptable. 
But we see that nothing is hidden from God's sight, and it's ultimately him to whom we have to give account. Not us, not our friends. This is a really heavy warning here, and we see how extraordinarily powerful the word of God is. Choosing to ignore it, it is saying, is a spiritual equivalent of choosing to be torn limb from limb. If, on the other hand, we're leaning into God, if we're leaning on his word, then from that position, the Holy Spirit works with us to reveal to us the things in our hearts that are holding us back from going deeper into God's amazing presence. A heart that is turned towards God will ultimately experience the word of God as wonderful, as freeing, as empowering. And reading these words with an obedient heart will powerfully draw us closer to the heart of the Father. It's the very vehicle that takes us into that heavenly rest that we're being urged to enter. It's just not rocket science, is it? Basically, we need to read this book. We need to read the Bible. We need to feed on it. We need to spend time dwelling on it. We need to work it into our lives. And we need to allow it to sift our thoughts. And we do so knowing that it's living and active. And I wonder, I'm sure there's a number of you here who might be thinking, oh, but I'm not really one of the kind to sit down and study and get all theological. If that's you, can I encourage you? Because that's not really me either. And the brilliant thing is, you don't need to read loads of commentaries. Nor do you need to be able to academically explain everything in the Bible. All you need is to find a quiet space sit down with your Bible and say, come Holy Spirit, speak to me. And then read something and then just wait and see what comes up. What's your next thought? How does it measure up against what you've just read? Allow your mind to do some churning. It might be that you feel distracted in that moment. But I've often found that it's actually in those very distractions that I hear the Holy Spirit reminding me of something. And it's actually extraordinarily rare that he's not speaking to me in those moments. But it might be that I don't recognize it until later. But I do see it happen. And it does take a bit of time to just sit quietly and tune into that still small voice. So I'm going to make a suggestion that might be a bit unpopular. But I'm going to make it anyway. Can I suggest that we take the time, once in a while, to read the word nowhere near our mobile phones or other electronic devices? I would... Oh, I'm getting some grunts there. Um, I would... I would love to say that I have the self-control that when um, I get a, a message or an email or a Facebook notification coming up, um, that... I have the self-control to just ignore it and carry on reading my Bible app. But the truth is that I don't. Um, And if you do, then you are a much better disciplined person than I am, and I congratulate you on that. And you'll have to come up next week and tell us how you do it, because um, it's not something that I've achieved. But if the reality is that, like me, you can't, that is a distraction, then why don't we just honor God by switching off from our connectivity for just a moment. I'm not saying for hours and hours. I'm only saying for 
five, ten minutes, for a short time, let's give him our full and undivided attention. I mean, after all, doesn't he deserve it? He is the creator of the universe, and he's the lover of our souls. So let's lean on his word, and let's give the spirit time to speak to us. And the second thing was that we lean on his grace. And let's go and have a read of those verses from verse 14 again. Because if that last section felt a bit like being encouraged with a large stick, and I'm hoping that this will be the equally large carrot to make up for it. So let's read it again and remind ourselves of what it says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, I wonder if you are the kind of person who is a trailblazer. Are you the kind of person who likes to be first to try new things, the first to um, try a new route um, on a walk somewhere, the first to try new adventures? Or are you more of a play-it-safe kind of person who likes to maybe follow along behind that person and make sure that um, they don't do something ridiculous to themselves, like break a leg? And I suppose it kind of depends on what the trail is that is being blazed, isn't it? Um, but I'm an oldest child, and I wonder if there are any other oldest children as well in this, in this room tonight who uh, would understand this. But basically, if you're an oldest child, you're the one who has to be a bit of a trailblazer. You're the one who has to um, maybe test the waters um, of your parents' disciplining to, you know, see where, see where the edges are, see where the uh, weaknesses are. I'm going to give you a really poor example, because I was uh, actually brought up very strictly, to be perfectly honest, Um, and I'm going to give you an example of a rebellion that I did as an oldest child, which is going to make you think, oh, that's pretty lame. But the rebellion that um, I did was that I decided I was going to go and get my ears pierced as a teenager. Ooh! (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? But um, all things are relative. So for me, in this particular instance, that was probably the equivalent to high treason. So off I went, and I got my ears pierced, and then I came back home, and I presented my newly smarting earlobes to, uh, to my mother. And her reaction was, oh, yeah, okay, don't get them infected. And I was so annoyed. I was really irritated. That wasn't the reaction I was after at all, um, because actually she just set the bar up here so that we could kind of come anywhere near it, and it would be fine. Um, wise move, wise move. Um, Yeah, but the interesting thing for me was that I could see my sisters, I've got two younger sisters, I could see them reacting to this situation quietly, um, uh, watching it unfold. And this look kind of passed between them of, oh, the way has been cleared. We can now advance. And I can tell you that within a couple of weeks, they'd both gone and got their ears done as well, so, you know, that was fun. But the reason I told you that was because Jesus is the ultimate big brother. He's tested the path not of disobedience, but he's tested the path of obedience to God 
all the way to the end. And he's done that so that we can be sure that it's safe. He trusted God even to death, and it completely paid off. Verse 14 down there, it says, He has gone through the heavens and into complete and eternal rest with God. That's why we can hold firmly to the faith we profess. Jesus has been there, done that, and got the white sparkly robes. And he experienced every single bump and hurdle along the way. And he came through victorious. He understands the challenges that we face. He sympathizes with our weakness. Again, that's verse 14. Because he was tempted in every single way. It's funny, isn't it? Sometimes it feels easier to convince ourselves that Jesus didn't sin because he was the Son of God. So it must somehow have been easier for him. But no, I think actually it was harder for him. Not succumbing to temptation is a lot harder work than giving in. It's hard work to keep forgiving people who hurt you. It's hard work to keep trusting God when it looks like he's forgotten to answer your prayer. And it's hard work to ultimately follow him in obedience all the way to death on a cross. Well, you say, Jesus didn't have anything special that we don't have, right? Well, oh wait, you say, what about the help of the Holy Spirit? Giving him power to act in faith in every circumstance. Don't you think that was some sort of advantage? Yeah, I do think that's a huge advantage. But the amazing thing is that his advantage is our advantage. It's precisely that same spirit who was with Jesus all through his life on earth and who raised him from the dead, who gave him the power to walk in obedience every step of the way. That is the same Holy Spirit that he offers to us. And this is where I want to come into land. We need the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, our faith is like a black and white, two-dimensional line drawing. You can see it makes sense, but it isn't alive. Instead of being characterized by that lean into God's rest, it feels like hard work as we just end up, we kind of end up dragging that back foot in, in our own strength. And if that is how your Christian walk feels, then these words are for you in verse 16. Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are urged to come to the throne of grace so that we can receive the, for- the forgiveness that's freely available to us when we confess that we've slipped up. And we come to the throne of grace so that the Holy Spirit can breathe life into our faith. It's by the Spirit that we understand the Word of God. And it's by the Spirit that we have power to obey it. We cannot do this in our own strength. We lean on his word. We lean on his grace. And as we do so, the Spirit turns our walk from drudgery and from effort into one of glorious color and into one of joy in all circumstances. 
and into one of power and strength. And we can come confidently to ask for this amazing gift because Jesus has opened the way already. And it says in Luke chapter 11, another encouragement, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We can always ask for more help from God. We can always ask for more of the Spirit. We can always ask him to make our efforts into joyful obedience and into fun. So here's the question that I want to end with for us to consider and ask ourselves. When did you last confidently approach the throne of God and ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit? Can you remember when that was? Can I encourage us to do that today? There's always more that we can ask for. There's always more power that we can tap into. So we're going to go into a time of response now. And I'd just love to pray for us. um, And then we'll sing. um, And then we'll move into a time of prayer afterwards. Um, But can I encourage you to stand? And if you'd like to hold out your hands as a sign that you are ready to receive, then please do. I'd love to pray for us. Jesus, we just thank you so much that you have blazed that trail to the Father already. And thank you so much that we are following in your footsteps. And we thank you so much that your power that got you there, that is freely available to us. And we come now and we say, Father, we are sorry when we've tried to do it in our own strength. And we don't want to strive and we don't want to struggle anymore. We just want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to fill us up again and empower our walk for your glory. Amen.